Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Hey, we're, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 um, today. Uh, I'm excited for the message. If you were here last week, we, we, we took a, a bit of a break from Revelation. I got to watch it online. I was in Oregon for vacation. Um, but we're going to be picking up in Revelation. And I'm going to go ahead and read our passage this morning. It says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is, sit, who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because, pit, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." May God bless the reading of his word. No, there we go. Okay. You have to press the button. It's famously uh, criticized of Christianity that it was the, uh, created to be the opiate of the people. But I, I heard one pastor say one time that Christianity was never meant to be the opiate of the people. It's the smelling salts for society. That is, things are not as they seem to you and I in the world in the way that sin and darkness has blinded us to the way the world is designed and meant to be by the Creator. And what John is doing continually in Revelation is trying to give us smelling salts to begin to see how God sees and to experience the world, the way that God has meant for us to see it. And so he gives us these provocative images over and over again in this shocking language to sort of wake us up into the way things are meant to be. We've seen the dragon, 
and then the beasts, and now this really intense image of the prostitute. Now, who is this prostitute? Well, we're told in verse 5 that she has on her name, excuse me, on her forehead is written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. It has Babylon written on her head. Now, who, what is Babylon? Well, if you go through the Old Testament, the first time you see Babylon is in Genesis chapter 11, which is this famous story of uh, the building of a tower uh, of the people of Babel. And what it sort of suggests is a people group who want to do life on their own. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a life for themselves. And they want to do it according to their own values. So as uh, you go through the Old Testament and you follow Israel's story, here's what happens. Israel is in bondage in Egypt. They're delivered from slavery. Then they're taken out into the wilderness and tested, and then they're entering into the promised land. And when they enter in, God says, listen, resist the idols of the foreign nations around you. Do not adopt their values. Do not adopt their loves. Do not adopt the things that define how they do society. And every single time Israel gives in, God pleads for them to repent. He sends an intervener, delivers them from salvation. They turn back to Him, and then they almost immediately turn back to the things that He forbids them to turn to. It happens over and over and over again where they will not stop turning to the idols, the loves, the values of the nations around them. And so finally, what God does is He brings Babylon in to carry the Israelites away, suggesting basically, if you want to live life your own way, if you want to live according to your own values, fine. Here's your people. Be a part of them. Because what Babylon represents is a way of doing life out of pride and arrogance, out of, out of choosing to go into your life and saying, I will do it my way. No one will tell me otherwise. I'm going to choose my own perspective on life. Now, when John talks about Babylon here, though, he has something specific in mind, because look in verse 9. He says this, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, almost every commentator here says that John has something specific in mind when he says the seven heads on the seven mountains, because uh, what he's probably thinking about is the Roman Empire. Because even to this day, we know Rome as the city of the ancient seven hills. And, and the point of that is he's saying, listen, this presence, this spirit of arrogance, of wanting to live life your own way, wasn't just threatening Israel, it's threatening him in this present day, and it threatens us into this present day. To always drag us away, to choose to live life however we want to live it. And the image to represent our choice to do this is a prostitute. In a word, what all of this is introducing for us is this idea of worldliness, of adopting the worldly values around us, way to live life. Now, this is what we're going to talk about this morning with worldliness. So, 
let's spend a minute unpacking this idea. In one of his letters, John, who's writing this book, Revelation, also wrote a letter in 1 John. He says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, do not love the world. Now, what does he mean by do not love the world? He does not mean hate the created order. Hate the things of this world. Hate the good gifts of this world. Nor does he mean hate all the structures of society. Hate all the government things. Hate everything that is out there that makes sort of society function a little bit together. Nor does he mean hate people who do not adopt the values of God. Elsewhere, in the book of Jeremiah, when the Israelites have been taken into Babylon, and they're wondering how they're supposed to survive captivity, and they're imagining that if we're going to be faithful to God, what we need to do is sort of build this enclave, this little bubble, and make sure none of the Babylonian culture affects us at all. Let's, let's just make sure our children never even hear the word Babylon. Let's, let's hide them under blankets and pretend none of this is happening. Actually, the, the prophet Jeremiah comes to them in chapter 29, and he says, listen, while you're here, while you're living in this society that in no way is going to help you love God and live life the way He wants you to live it, He says, seek the prosperity of the city. Settle down. Build houses. Find wives. Raise families here. And what He's saying is, listen, don't be out of this world but don't be of this world. One of John's disciples wrote a letter to this early uh, Roman Greco uh, man named Diognetius. And he was trying to describe for him what Christians were like in the early Greco-Roman world. And he said this, for Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language, or even their customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a a peculiar form of speech. They do not even follow an eccentric manner of life. Yet, although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and they follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and matters of daily living, At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their commonwealth. They live in their countries, but only as aliens. When John says, do not love the world, keep in mind, this is the same person who wrote in his gospel, for God so loved the world that He gave His God and only Son. So, don't, don't ever think that being a Christian means looking at Los Angeles and hating every part of it. 
and looking at all the things that sort of mark this city and say, we can't ever, ever acknowledge these things. But neither does it mean live in a city like Los Angeles and become blind to all the things that define what it means to thrive and live in this city and casually adopt them. Now, what does John mean by don't love this world? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, he says, this is 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life are not from the Father, but of this world. Look, when he says the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye, it comes from this one Greek word, epithumia. Thumia is the Greek word for desire. Epi is the prefix for over, magnified, or blown up. What he means is that worldliness takes normal things that even God gives us and makes them everything, makes them ultimate things. See, here's how worldliness comes. If you don't have God in the center of your life, you will by nature have to chase something to make the center of your life. It may be something admirable like your job or your family or your children, or it may be something really empty like money, reputation, fame, materialistic, sexual things, anything to fill that void. You will have to chase something, and you will keep chasing it and be lured in by its promises of what it swears it will give you. And you will do whatever it takes to make sure you keep it, and you will walk over anyone who gets in the way of you having it to make sure no matter what, you have it. See, what worldliness is, is putting all of your eggs in this life's basket and saying there has got to be something right now that will tell me I'm okay, that life is enough, and that this is the meaning of it. And you will chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it, and that's what worldliness is. And the image that John gives us to describe our relationship to that is a prostitute. So let me give give you three, actually, pretty quick reflections on our temptation and our relationship to the problem of worldliness. It's this, life is a struggle, so start with the ending because you only need one relationship. Let me, let me tell you this. Life is... Look, if you want to be a Christian, you have to know this right now. Evil will never stop coming after you. We're given this in the book of Revelation. John sees the dragon, the beasts, and then the prostitute. Simply put, theologians describe this as the world, excuse me, the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is always going to be something outside of you, something around you, and something inside of you that is dragging you away from the goodness and the presence of God. And it is always going to drag you away with this one line, live 
for yourself. And there is no position in the church, and there is no amount of theology that can make you immune to that struggle. Look in the text. Here's what we're told in verse 3. The Apostle John is carried away in the Spirit, okay? This, This is not like John is waking up just first thing in the morning, or he hasn't eaten all day, and it's just a bad situation. Carried away in the Spirit, and then he says, he sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. So he knows who he's seeing. This is not like he's looking up and wondering, now who is this? Um, Am I going to find out who this is? He knows exactly who he's looking at. Then in verse 4, It says this, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Look, he sees the lies, he sees the danger, he sees the attraction. Look in verse 5. He sees her name written on the forehead, and then in verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. John knows how evil this is. He knows how evil this woman is. He knows all of the lies. And look, here's the very next phrase in in verse 6, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, look at this. This man has seen pictures of Jesus we long to see. He has witnessed the resurrection of Jesus in a clear and vivid way that maybe none of us will ever see in this life. He has experienced the throne room of God and seen the secret plan of God unfolded for all things to be made right. And when He's shown the allures of this world and everything that it stands for, even its destruction, His response at the beginning is just to go, I marveled at it. That John is drawn in because, listen, life is a struggle. Outside the English Lake District, in the southeast part of the country, uh, there's uh, a mountain, and the road up the mountain is just called the struggle, because it's a winding road that goes up around this mountain, and it's so steep, and it's so winding, that actually if you don't struggle to go up it, you will slide back down the mountain and probably slide into the lake. And like one of the myths people have about Christianity is that you can get to this place where this is just a coasting life. Like some of you look at pastors or leaders in this church and think this is easy to wake up and to follow Jesus and to pray. 
Look, that is a myth from the prostitute. You never graduate the struggle. Paul, at the very end of his life, one of the last things we have him saying is, I have fought the good fight. He says, all the way to the end, it was a struggle all the way up. And let's apply this in two ways. Because personally what this means is that you will always be doing this. The allure will always be drawing you in. It will always be attractive. And you will always be struggling with it. Don't ever equate the struggle with assurance of faith. Look, life in the church is like this. And we don't talk about it very much. And it's a crisis because we never say it. But the presence of it in your own life is not a crisis. It really is the life of faith. And you know, when John says that he marveled greatly at this, did you notice this in verse 3? He says, I was carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness is always the place in the Bible of isolation and of desolation. Look, Ben said this a few minutes ago. Community is powerful. And one of the ways that you always give in to worldliness is when you're not a part of it. And one of the dangers about being a part of it is you think when you are struggling with it, you're not worthy of it. Don't ever give in to that prostitution allure. You are going to struggle, and that's faith. But the other application of this is you're always going to be in community with people who struggle. Look, this is never going to be a place where people just get it. You're always going to be around people who in one verse say all of these things about Jesus and in the next verse of their life completely go into the values of this world. Listen, in Acts chapter 1, the apostles have just seen Jesus died and risen again, and they've spent 40 days with Him, hearing Him talk about the resurrection, hearing Him talk about the meaning of His death, hearing Him talk about the plan of the kingdom of God, hearing them talk about how it comes through suffering and laying your life down. They have personally witnessed it, heard Jesus talk about it, and right before He ascends in Acts chapter 1, they look at Him and say, so Jesus, now, are, are you going to like overthrow Rome and do it for us? Look, you're never not going to be in community with people who drive you crazy by their temptation to get in bed with this prostitute because life is a struggle. Second implication, because it's a struggle, you have to start with the ending. Look, worldliness, it's always attractive. This is the point of the text. It's always alluring, 
And so in order to fight it, you can't, you can't look at this, these things and try to convince yourself they're not attractive. Stop, stop today trying to tell yourself that being rich is not attractive. Stop telling yourself that living for yourself does not sound satisfying. You're never going to convince yourself with that. And so what you actually have to do is start with the ending. Let me show you what I mean. If you go to verse 15, it says this, The angel said to me, this is John, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Which means the prostitute, the worldliness, is, it draws in our culture in large, large amounts. It makes sense that this is attractive. Everybody's brought into this. But in the, verse 16, in the, in the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. Where did the prostitute come from? The beast made her. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, here's what we're learning here in this verse. The evil that created the evil will destroy the evil. As one author put it, evil in this text eats its own tail. So here's how you can learn to walk away from worldliness. You have to start with the ending. And you have to realize that what you're chasing will not love you, it will curse you. One author put it this so well, pretty much anything else you worship other than God will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, you, you have to look at these things that you're so tempted to build your life on and realize what the Bible is telling you. That thing will never, ever love you. It will kill you. In 2003, in Harlem, uh, the upper part of New York City, the police found a 500-pound tiger, Bengal tiger, living in an apartment with a man. When they found him, he'd nearly been mauled to death. Now, how did he get here? Well, Antoine Yates, he said this, I love animals. You love them and they love you back. A Bengal tiger. My relationship with Ming was very, very unique, he insisted. We had a bond that was unbelievable. Now, if, that, if that's not a picture of how we talk to the things in this world that we so love, 
I don't know what is. That you're sure you and this thing have this unique relationship. And if you love it and give things to it, it will love you back. When Antoine's brother Aaron came to visit him, because Antoine lived in a lot of isolation, he walked in and saw the tiger, and he was like, whoa! And Antoine said, hey man, chill out, this is serious. And his brother said, this is not serious, this is crazy. That thing will eat you. And Antoine said, no, 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 that thing loves me. His brother left, and two days later, the tiger nearly mauled him to death. When the detective went to go rescue the tiger from the apartment, here's what he said. He said, I turned around and I saw the tiger charge at the window. All I saw was this giant head with a mouthful of giant teeth coming at me. That's when I was like, all right, I'm about to be eaten by a tiger. Look, here's what's amazing about this story. Everyone around him could see this is going to eat you. And he was totally convinced, no, this thing loves me. Do you have enough wisdom to look at the things in your life right now and distinguish between the things that will love you and eat you? Because John struggled with it, and the only thing that helped him is to realize, listen, the th- these things, they hate each other, and they're going to end up hating me. And you know what? Here's, here's amazing in this text. If you go to chapter 18, which we didn't read at the beginning, we're told this. When Babylon's destruction comes, it says, the seven, it says, the kings of this earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Here's what's fascinating about this text, what John is doing, is that when Babylon is destroyed, those who love her weep. Now, in a couple chapters, we're going to see this picture of the new heavens and the new earth come. And when that comes, one of the descriptions we're told is that there will be no more weeping. And and John is putting this out for us. You're going to have tears You can either shed them now and have them wiped away when the new heavens and new earth come. Or you can try to live your life right now avoiding tears by giving yourself to anything that promises it won't give you tears. But one day, that will be taken away from you and it will be only tears. And the only way to see it is to start with the ending. Because quickly and lastly, life is a relationship. Look, what is this text doing for us? Is it's trying to get you to think 
about sin in a more profound way than just breaking the rules. Look, it's not less than that ever. But worldliness is described as prostitution because when God made us, when He made human beings, He made us in His image. He made us formatted for relationship and communion with Him, to be connected to Him, to have every part of our life have an intimate relationship with God involved in how we think about it, how we experience it, how we make decisions about it. There isn't meant to be a single part of your life that you don't have God connected to it. And so when we go out in our life and try to have God absent from us, and try to do things without Him, He says, we're doing the same thing as a spouse who goes and commits adultery on their husband or wife. Now, why do we need to know that? It's because the profound nature of God's pursuit of you will never ring home unless you realize how deep you are into this. Look what he says in chapter 18, verse 4. When John sees all of the world struggling with this, and even the church wrapped up in its problem, in verse 4 of chapter 18 it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, this language, come out of her, I just have to caveat, this is deeply intimate sexual language. Because every time in the Old Testament, when it talks about intimacy, it will say things like, he went into her. It talks about honeymoon nights this way. It's over and over again in the Song of Solomon. And so the image here that I want you to see is that when God calls His people and He calls you and I to repentance, which is language not just to stop doing something but to turn from something and to turn to something else, He's not standing outside in the parking lot waiting for us to clean up our lives and come to Him. The image is almost Him breaking in to the hotel room, finding us in the act of giving ourselves to things in this world and asking us in that moment to come out. And to come be with him. Look, John, John sees two things. He sees a prostitute alluring him with every attractive detail you and I would struggle to resist right now. And he sees a God who will not stop running after him. And what enables him, and what will enable you, to walk away from worldliness 
is if you begin to understand that the God of the Bible is a God who comes after us like the Father in Luke 15, picking up His skirt and running after us, not waiting for us to even utter our words of repentance, but receiving us and giving us a kiss. Look, I I know I talk about movies too much, but... um, Sometimes there's just not better pictures than some of these. I mean, do you remember the movie Forrest Gump? And it's just hard to find a better picture of this. Where the little girl Jenny, I mean, she can't not stop going out into the world and finding something to love her. And every lover she gives herself to never gives her what she hopes. They always abuse her. They always hate her. They always take advantage of her. And every single time, Tom Hanks' character continually comes and says, I will love you. I will love you. And she says, no, no, and keeps giving herself over and over and over again to these men who hate her and want to take stuff from her and want to never give anything to her. And Forrest will never stop coming after her. And finally, at the end of the movie, she finally comes home, done with herself, at the end of her rope, and just says, Forrest, will you marry me? And he's not like, well, I asked you 10 years ago. Where were you then? He hasn't grown a heart of bitterness. He hasn't grown a cold heart towards her. He says, yes. And what the movie and Revelation 17 and 18 are telling you is that wherever you are, however deep you are, in the bed of worldliness, you can always come home. And the Father invites you to leave, to get out, and to come home. That's Revelation 17 and 18. Let me pray. Father, We will never stop struggling with this. And so we need you to be a father who never stops running after us for it. Lord, we want to repent. We want to turn from our worldliness. And anybody right here, Lord, who is stuck in their worldliness, Lord, would you you come into their life for the power of the Holy Spirit and help them to leave the values of this world, the things that promise to give them life, that will hate them. Lord, but they whisper love. Would you, would you come after them and pull them out and pull them into fellowship and communion with you? Lord, and help us, those of us who know you, who are in the church but can't stop struggling. Would you help us, Lord Jesus? Lord, to embrace you with two arms. To set ourselves free from the curses of this world. To taste the joy of the heaven to come. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.